as we get into Matthew chapter number 18, I want to kind of begin with this question. Have you ever wanted to be someone else? Have you ever wanted to be someone else? Um, as kids, don't we love to play pretend? And maybe as a child, um, we have all sorts of different generations in here, so um, it'd be hard to pinpoint who we've dressed up as or who we played pretend as. Just a few weeks ago, there was a, a holiday that we celebrate by dressing up, right? Uh, many of you, I saw you here dressed up for our trunk or treat this Halloween, and we had a great time with that. It's a fun thing to pretend to be someone else. Um, and some of you, some of you haven't grown out of that desire to pretend to be someone else, and it's okay. We love you for it. All right? Um, even this week, um, I was kind of laughing as I was thinking about uh, some of this. This last week, um, on Friday evening, we were downtown with the tree lighting uh, for the city of Monroe. And um, as you came in, we had, um, we had a, a donkey and a sheep. We had a few um, nativity uh, characters that were dressed up. And then over to, our, uh, over to your left um, was what we, we had our three wise men. Um, if you know the three men that we asked to be our three wise men, they're more like the three wise guys. Um, but it's all right. It's all right. Um, and it was fun to watch a couple of them really get into being dressed up and uh, fun to watch uh, people really getting into the Christmas spirit early this year. Uh, but we love to dress up. We love to play pretend. I can remember my first Halloween costume um, immediately after. So I, my dad had finally, just before Halloween this year, he had finally let me take the magnificent step that every uh, every little boy ought to be able to take uh, the first time that they watched Star Wars. Yeah, big time. And so as it came into, this is before all the prequels and all the other stuff that's out now, um, so I wanted to be Luke Skywalker. And so I remember uh, my parents helping me find a costume for Luke Skywalker. And I remember the first time, this is the first time in my memory that I dressed up for Halloween, got to pick what I wanted to be. And I went as Luke Skywalker because I was just obsessed with Star Wars as a little six or seven year old. We enjoy pretending to be other people. But even as we begin to approach, say, Nate, we're even going with this. As we approach this text, as we begin in verses 15 through 35 today, what we're doing and what this passage is really speaking to us about is Christ-likeness. Now, the goal of the Christian is Christ-likeness. Did you catch that? The goal of the Christian is Christ-likeness. If you're in here today and you call yourself a Christian, the goal that God has set before you is to be like Jesus Christ, to be conformed to his image is one way that the Bible says it, to be transformed into the same image is the way that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter number 3, verse 18. But regardless of the phrasing, what we would call it is we would say Christ-likeness, to be like Jesus. Now understand the difference. God's not calling us to play pretend. God's calling us to be transformed from the inside out. Paul again writes, us, writes to us about that in Romans chapter number 12, verse number 1. He tells us not to be conformed, to be made like the image of the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so changed from the inside out. So if you are a Christian in this room today, your goal ought to be biblically becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And so as we begin today, as we get into this, I want you to understand that we are called 
to what we can, a phrase that we can use today, and I want to introduce this to you, is transformational discipleship. And Jesus' call to us is to transformational discipleship. That's Jesus' call for all of our lives. Being a disciple or a follower of Jesus is going to change who you are and how you do things. Okay? We cannot be followers of Jesus without being changed. It just doesn't exist. But transformational discipleship is when a follower of Jesus allows themselves to be changed from the inside out. And as we begin looking at this today, what we're going to see is uh, that we ought to, because first and foremost, this is a passage about what's going on internally. That's why I entitled this message, It Starts in the Heart. Uh, it begins internally, and it moves outward to all areas. And so as we go into this passage today, what we are called to do is we are called to examine ourselves in all areas. David prayed this prayer in the Psalms. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. And so he says, God, get all up inside of my heart and know what's going on. Dig into me and how I think and how I feel and examine me and reveal what you want to reveal. Now, uh, as we step into this passage, it's important for us to understand who Jesus is kind of coming and ministering to. In the book of Matthew, Jesus has one common um, opponent, one group of people that is consistently pushing back against Jesus. And that group of people is called the, the Pharisees. The Pharisees. This is a word that if you grew up around church, you've probably heard a good amount. If you haven't even, maybe you've heard that person is a Pharisee or whatever. You've heard Pharisaical being used. It's a common vernacular in our language, even still today. And here's what we use it to mean. It's someone who doesn't practice what they preach, right? And so that's what a Pharisee tends to be. But what the Pharisees were historically is this group of religious people that held to a very strict understanding of the law. And so they took the law, and what they did is in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, they took all of these rules and laws, and they boiled them down to a simple 613 regulations. Yeah, exactly. Thank God, only 613 for us to remember. Um, if we're honest, many of us in here have a difficult time reciting the Ten Commandments, okay? 613 regulations that they believed were necessary for a holy life. But what the Pharisees failed to understand is that rules cannot change people. Rules cannot change people. Rules can change behavior, maybe, for a period of time, but rules don't actually change individuals. Can we all agree on this? Some of you are the perfect demonstrations of this. Because as a kid, your parents had all of the rules, and did that change anything for you? I already see some smirks and some eyes rolling, so I can tell which of you uh, were those kids. And some of you guys, you're like, oh, no, that wasn't me, because you were compliant and obedient and helpful. But the fact is, is that rules, rules have never changed anyone. Rules may influence behavior, but if you need a consequence to tell you how to behave... There's something different going on inside of your heart. Rules don't do that. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we believe in a transformation 
that takes place from the inside out. And here, this begins in verse number 15. Watch this. Um, Jesus is speaking here, and he's telling his disciples, and this is actually just after coming off of some very hard sayings. So we're going to get into some things that are uh, maybe a little difficult for us to not necessarily understand, but to actually put into practice. And what we see in verse 15 is Jesus says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. By my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And so what we're finding here is we're finding qualifiers for what we could call Christian confrontation. Qualifiers for Christian confrontation. Now, um, if we're all being honest, we've all been hurt by people before. If you've never been hurt by someone, then I'm surprised to see you because you're telling me that you've never spent time with people. You spend time with people, you're going to be hurt by people. Can we all just agree to that and admit to that? Uh, that doesn't mean that everyone is a bad person that hurts us or influences us negatively. In fact, some of the people that you've probably been hurt by are people that live under the same roof that you live under. In fact, if we're really being quite honest, one of the people that has probably hurt you as much or more than any other person is probably the person you saw in the mirror this morning. You see, uh, as we begin looking at this, we have to understand that hurt is going to take place. We've all been disappointed. We've all faced unmet expectations. And I'm not trying to downplay this at all. Because when it's us and when it's in the middle, when we're going through it, this is a difficult thing to process, right? Uh, this isn't something to be made light of. But we do have to remember that the Bible tells us that there is no temptation that is given to us except that which is common to a man. And with the temptation, God also provides a way of escape. And so as we get into this, really quickly, let me just emphasize with you, do not let roots of bitterness grow within your heart because you will not enjoy the fruit. You hear me? Do not let roots of bitterness grow within your heart. You will not enjoy the fruit. Because the fruit of bitterness is bitter. Irony, right? No, plain. It's bitter. And so what happens here? When is this an appropriate time to be used? We see this in verse number 15. Watch as he just begins as Jesus speaks here. He begins with a very specific phrase. He says, number one, if your brother. And so this is an individual that is within the body. This isn't just between men. This is speaking of a familial relationship. So what he's speaking of here is if someone who is considered a brother or a sister in Christ, it has to be someone, first of all, that is within the body. Secondly, this brother sins against you. Now understand that when he says sins against you, does that mean this is every time that someone does something you don't like, you need to confront them? Is that what this conversation is? Man, uh, some, of, some of us, man, we just like confrontation. And if you like confrontation, um, 
God help you. God help you. You like confrontation, you'll find it, okay? Uh, but the fact is, is that most of us are probably a little conflict averse, right? Most of us, if we, maybe if we have to have the conversation, but we're a little conflict averse. We don't like conflict. It wears on us. It grates on us. It, it grinds us down. But the fact is here, it's not a matter of, oh, well, I don't like what decision this person makes, so I'm going to cause conflict. Now, that's called being divisive. But now what we're seeing is we're seeing that a brother has sinned. A brother has done something that is wrong. A brother has violated Scripture. Not only sinning, but watch this. Against who? Against you. So this isn't just a general thing. There are processes, there are other passages of Scripture that look at authority and look at things that ought to be done from a general sense. But here, here's the thing. Every time someone does something you don't like, even if your brother or sister in Christ that's across the room, you see them doing something towards someone else, understand this. This passage has parameters for that confrontation. And so we see that if a brother, though this is, this is something that still happens, right? So it's not that this is never to be used, but we see if your brother sins against you. How does this process begin? As we look into these verses, I want you to help, I want to help you understand here what the goals of all of these things are. Look at this in verse number um, six, verse number 15. If he sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The goals of godly confrontation are repentance and restoration. This is always the goal within godly confrontation. Repentance and restoration. This is the ideal. Is it always possible? No, we're going to see that it's not always possible. And then we're going to see what we do when it's not possible. And really the thing that even goes before this, the order of this Jesus has in mind a reason, I believe, for why he put it in this order. But what we're going to find is that he's going to move from some of the external to some of the internal during this passage that we're studying today. The goals of godly confrontation, though, are repentance and restoration. So when your brother sins against you, when this person that you have fellowship with does something that, that is detrimental towards you, sins against you, wrongs you, the first thing we're called to do is go to that brother, and what do we do? We go and we convince them that they were wrong and tell them all the things that they did and how they hurt us. Well, what's the confrontation? Go tell him his fault. I believe that even the spirit of this is to begin with a, a spirit that is willing to accept or understand or to believe the best about that brother. Because what do we see at the end of it? If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. The process stops there. Great, there is a restoration that can begin as a result of that repentance. But what happens if they choose not to continue? If they choose not to accept responsibility or to move forward with this relationship. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Uh, and then if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so what we see is we see this progress. We see this as this begins to unfold. We see, hey, uh, I need these witnesses that we take and that we're ought to bring together as we go to this brother that has wronged us once again. And understand that uh, when there is a time that um, repentance is refused, when it's pushed away, 
as we go into this passage, um, I want to be careful because there are times, and even churches, a lot of churches right now are falling into traps where there's misapplication of some of this. Um, for example, um, you may not be super aware. If you're not super aware, then uh, I don't want to necessarily keep you that way. But there are, among American churches right now, uh, there are um, a number of different um, investigations that are ongoing within different denominations concerning abuse within the church. And it makes me sick even just to like talk about these things, right? But they exist. It's out there. And the fact is, is the more that we um, demonstrate our awareness of these things, I believe the better that we actually protect ourselves from them. And so we have a choice. We want to bury our heads in the sand and say, oh, well, that doesn't exist and it'll never happen here. Or to be proactive and to put safeguards in place. And so we've chosen the latter. Which is why, like when you come in, if you have young kids, you came in and you checked your kids in today before they went into childcare. So we know what kids are here. If you entrusted them to our nursery or elementary kids, those uh, leaders were vetted. They've been background checked. They're people that have attended this church for a minimum period of time. We know who they are. They're never going to be alone with your kid or any other kid. They're going to be multiple adults. We take all of these steps. Why? Because we think these people are going to. No, we don't. But Listen, we're going to take precautions to make sure that we are not guilty of that behavior. But the fact is here is that when uh, there are churches that have gotten themselves in trouble, because then when a, a victim comes forward and they begin to say, this happened, some churches have said, oh, well, you got to go talk to that accuser. This is a Matthew 18 subject. Can I tell you right now, that is not the case. That's not what we're talking about here. When it's a systemic issue like this, when it's an abuse of authority, when it's something like that that's going on, when it's some kind of a gross misconduct and it's an illegal behavior, that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is interpersonal conflict, interpersonal grievances. That's what's happening in this passage. And so as a church, um, if the day comes and Lord, we pray it never comes, that something like that were to come up and were to happen and were to be uh, made aware here. Listen, even at this point, what happens uh, when the person rejects the truth? When the person has already turned away? He says, take others with you. I believe part of that is because that individual that is uh, showing hesitancy to repent may or may not be a safe person, whether it be physically, emotionally, spiritually, uh, mentally, testimonially. There has to be those that we surround ourselves with when we pursue truth and reconciliation. It's a little bit of a sidebar there. But as we look at this, what we find is that the next step in a uh, confrontation, a loving confrontation between believers, is to go and to take others with. And then finally, what happens is if the, if the individual is unwilling to hear these witnesses, if they're unwilling to change behavior, if they're unwilling to take those steps that are necessary, then what we see here is we see verse 17, if he refuses to listen. Now, does that mean refuses to be in agreement on all matters? That's not necessarily the case either. This is saying refuses to listen, refuses to engage in a conversation, potentially refuses to change behavior in response to what has taken place. You see, this doesn't go into all of the details for us. It just gives us a, a general outline. What does it say? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, I think that's a really interesting phrase. Like a Gentile and a tax collector. What's that code for here in Matthew? What did Jesus do with the tax collectors and Gentiles? 
He loved them, didn't he? Did he throw rocks at them and say, get out of here and drive them away? No, there's a difference between treating them like a brother. What did he treat them like? He treated them like a lost person. Treat them like someone without Jesus. Because, and here's why I think that's the case. Because it's likely that that's what they are at this point. If they've gone through this process where there is open and known sin, and they're unwilling to even admit to that sin or to take a correction of course, a change of course, to bring their lives back into uh, abiding in the word and following scripture, the odds are this person is not a believer in Jesus Christ. You say, Nate, that's some, those are some bold words. That's kind of a harsh statement to make. First um, John chapter 3. I would really encourage you to study this passage. The first few verses of this passage tell us that the person that is born of God cannot keep on sinning. Not probably won't, not is unlikely to. The person born of God cannot keep sinning. Strong language. Strong language. And so I believe here, as Jesus is speaking, he's saying, treat them like they're lost in an effort to win them to Christ in order to bring them into the body. And so as we look at this entire segment, understand that even discipline is motivated by renewal. Even a discipline within the body of Christ is motivated by renewal. Because what happens when the Gentile and the tax collector comes to Jesus Christ? There's celebration. There's joy. There is welcoming. They're always welcome to come in. And so it is with a brother or a sister who goes astray into sin. When they find themselves in that space, we don't throw rocks at them and spit at them and kick them while they're down. No, we demonstrate the love of God to them. Does discipline have to take place? Sure. But a parent doesn't discipline their child because they despise their child, do they? That's called abuse. A parent disciplines their child because they love their child. And they want to see a change in their hearts and in their lives. And so even discipline among believers, it's not punishment. It's not behaving punitively. It's discipline motivated by renewal. Peter doesn't get this at first because, of course, he doesn't. Um, watch, watch what's going on here. Um, and at the end of this section here in verse number 15, let's continue with uh, verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And I believe this passage, sometimes it gets used in prayer. Sometimes it gets used to um, speak of that. I believe that comes from verse number 19 when it speaks of anything they ask. Uh, what I believe this is specifically discussing in the context of this passage is reconciliation. That God's in the middle of that mending of relationships. And that he is at the heart of reconciliation between believers. Verse 21, for sake of time, we got to keep moving. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Now, here's what's funny is Peter thinks that he is doing um, this great thing. Um, remember those 613 rules? 
among those rules, the Pharisees taught and they believed that you have to forgive your brother three times. After they, after you forgive them three times, fourth time, you're out of here. More gracious than Major League Baseball, but still, the fourth time, you're done, you're gone, you're out. Forget that. I don't have to forgive you anymore. And so Peter's coming to Jesus. And I just love Peter because the more I read about Peter, the more I'm like, I'm Peter. Um, and not in the smart ways. Like, I do these dumb things too. Peter comes to Jesus and Peter says, hey, listen, Jesus, how many times are you telling us that we need to reconcile with our brother? How many times do we have to do that? Seven times? That's a godly thing, right? Seven times? And Peter, I think, thinks that he's like exceeding the law here uh, by, by coming to him and saying, hey, listen, uh, I'm going to be so godly. Uh, what is Jesus' response? This is translated a couple of different ways. I'm going to get to a little bit of that, um, which way I believe it leans in just a minute. But regardless what we find here, the number is not as important as the truth that's behind it. Verse 22, Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, and depending on which version of the Bible you're reading, it says, but either 77 times or either 70 times seven. And so I won't get into all the Greek. Basically, either number can come from that Greek. That's why it's different. Okay, so um, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And here it translates, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And here's why I think that's, I think that's the correct translation. And here's why I think that. That number 77 times is found one other time in the Bible. One other time in the Bible. Anyone know where? Great Bible trivia. It's okay. I didn't know either. Genesis chapter 4. Um, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read this to you. Um, Genesis chapter 4 has actually the first um, one. Uh, probably, I think this is probably the, uh, the first poem from an, written by an individual here. Watch this. Um, verse 23. Listen here. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. It's a beautiful poem here. He's going to declare his love for them or something like that. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. That's a beautiful poem, isn't it? Prepare that for Valentine's Day. You know, come in and say, wife of mine, listen to what I say. Hopefully the next words are not, I have killed a man. <laughs> Isn't Okay, this is the only time that 77 is mentioned in the whole scripture. And here's the funny thing, is it's mentioned in correlation with vengeance. Wronging those that have wronged you. And so here Lamech is um, immediately after Cain. Um, the story of Cain and Abel is the first, really, not the first tragic story, the second tragic story found in the Bible. And what we find is we find Abel and Cain, these two brothers. Abel gives these sacrifices that are pleasing to God, and God honors these sacrifices. Cain gives a sacrifice that is not pleasing to God. And then um, what does Cain do? Cain gets jealous of his brother, goes and takes revenge on his brother, who didn't even really wrong him. But he kills his brother. And then God comes to Cain, and um, Cain gives a famous line, am I my brother's keeper? Uh, and then... What does God do? God says, hey, you're going to be condemned to go on your own. And Cain says, listen, people are going to kill me if they see me out here. If they know what I've done and they know who I am, they're going to extract revenge on me. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to, I'm going to protect you. If someone wrongs you, they'll receive judgment from me sevenfold. And then now Lamech comes a few generations later and Lamech says, oh yeah, you remember the judgment of Cain that God was going to bring on Cain's enemies of sevenfold? Well, I'm going to bring 77-fold judgment because I'm Lamech. 
Lamech was the guy that uh, the really first example of, I don't get even, I get ahead. That was Lamech. And so what's he saying? He says, yeah, this, this young man wounded me. Uh, we don't know what happened. We don't know if this guy was scrapping for a fight. We don't know if uh, this is a physical thing. We don't know if he wronged him financially or whatever. But what does Lamech do? He kills him. He goes from here to here. Because you don't mess with Lamech. And so now we have Peter who's coming around, and Peter's like, hey, listen, Jesus, um, if I'm going to forgive, I'm going to forgive seven times. And Jesus here, what does he do? And he's saying, no, 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 no. You're going to forgive. And what does he give? Whether your translation says 77 times or 490 times, what's he saying? This is hyperbole. How long does it take you to make a list of 77 or 490 grievances that you have against someone else? Can I tell you, if you're tracking that list, you have a problem. You need counseling. If you're waiting for time, if you're like, oh, I'm going to take a lower number and I'm at time number 76, God help you. God help you. Because there is something wrong and it's not just on the outside, although it's about to show itself. But there's something a lot deeper that's taking place in your heart, if that's where you find yourself. And then Jesus, as he says this, watch what he says, watch what he does. He goes into a story. Um, and with Peter, here's what we see from Peter. We see Peter wanted a confrontation with the possibility of conflict. Peter liked conflict for a period of time, right? Peter's the guy that took a sword with him, and when they went to take Jesus, cuts off a dude's ear. Uh, Peter liked to fight. Peter had some of that Lamech in him. Because, I mean, this guy's arresting Jesus. Let's go, let's fast forward. This guy's arresting Jesus in the garden, and Peter takes out a sword. And if he's getting your ear, what do you think he's swinging for? Okay? So he's not, like, threatening. He's, he's coming for blood. So Peter here wants this conflict. He's just going to escalate this whole thing. How many times do I have to forgive? Seven times? Because I can wait seven times, I guess, if I have to. But watch as we jump into the end of this chapter. Verse 23. Therefore, so because of all of this, he's tying all of these things together. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Okay, um, how many of you use talents today? You're going to go to lunch and you're going to pay with talents. Anybody? No one? Okay, great. Um, good, because t talents are a little bit uh, dated in our metric today. Um, but here's what a talent um, is. He's actually going to come to another. I'll get there in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 25, let's keep reading. Since he could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And so the, the, the master here, the, the king here says, listen, I'm going to take your family, your children. Um, this actually was a common practice among the Gentile world. This is not a Jewish thing, but it is a Gentile thing in this era. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him. So just begging the king, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. Um, spoiler alert, he can't pay everything. I'm going to go into that here in just a minute, and you're going to see there's no chance on earth he's ever paying this. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. 
And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. That sound familiar? I mean, hopefully it does, because we read it two verses ago. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So follow with me here. Um, a denarii, the second servant owes about 100 denarii. Um, a denarii is about um, a day's wage for a laborer. So if you work um, just a, an entry-level job or a working-class job, um, a denarii is a day's pay. So just for the sake of round numbers today, we're going to estimate probably a little bit low. Um, but let's say in our modern times, a denarii is $100. Okay, just for the sake of round numbers, makes math easy. A denarii is about $100. So he owes him a hundred denarii. What's a hundred denarii? Any, anyone with math? hundred denarii, we're looking at about, about $10,000. About $10,000 here. So is this um, no money at all? That's, a, that's an amount of money, right? Like $10,000, if someone walked up to you today and handed you $10,000, you'd probably be pretty excited. You'd probably be like, okay, cool. Um, no leftovers for lunch today, right? We're going to celebrate. <laughs> We're getting Taco Bell or something. All right? No, $10,000, listen, I mean, that's a good amount of money. No one, none of us are scoffing at that. But then we see this man that before all of that, he owed the king 10,000 talents. Okay, so um, what's a talent? A talent is about... 20 years wages. 20 years wages. So one talent alone is about 6,000 denarii. So one talent equals, if we're using the same math, one talent is $600,000. And how many talents does this dude owe? 10,000 talents. So how much money is this guy in debt? You ready for this? So using the same math? Six billion dollars. Do you know the difference between six billion dollars and ten thousand dollars? It's about six billion dollars. <laughs> I mean, like, this is an obscene amount of money. And this is an amount of money that, like, uh, if, if, if we as a unit owed six billion dollars, we are never paying this off, all of us in this room combined in our lifetime. Six billion dollars. It doesn't matter. I mean, unless, unless you have, you know, um, Jeff Bezos or someone like that sitting in the congregation, you ain't paying that off. Listen, $6 billion doesn't care about your six-figure salary. <laughs> this is an obscene amount of money. This is a number that just doesn't even make sense. Uh, to put it this way, uh, well, here's what it is. It's 160,000 years of those laborers' wages. So you're making an average income, 160,000 years, and you're not paying a dime for living, food, anything else. If I were to offer you $1 every second, that sounds like a pretty good deal, right? If I were to offer you a dollar a second, in less than two weeks, you would be a millionaire. To make that $6 billion at a dollar a second, so $60 an hour, 24-7, seven days a week, it would take you 180 years. You understand that? If you owe $6 billion, 
Your autobiography is going to begin with chapter 7, 11, and 13. You do not have the ability to pay. It's ridiculous. It's obscene. There is no amount of money that is coming on. There's nothing that's helping you out of this hole. And so this man comes, and what happens? He comes to the king, and he owes the king $6 billion. You kidding me? You kidding me? $6 billion. And so what does this guy say? Oh, yeah, I've got that money for you. Just let me go pull out my checkbook. You, you, need a, you need a cashier's check for this? You want a wire transfer? It's probably a wire transfer amount. Yeah, let's do that. No, you're saying $6 billion? There ain't no way I can pay that. I'm not even putting a debt in this. Throwing $100 a month of this is not going to help. $6 billion. What does the king say to this man? This man begins to plead and begins to beg, and he has what? His mercy, pity. He looks at him and says, man, I know you can't pay. So I'm going to forgive that debt. It's no longer on your shoulders. And so what does this guy do? He walks out of that room. He can breathe for the first time in forever. He can breathe, right? He doesn't owe this debt anymore. Can you just imagine the thoughts going through his mind? Uh, Because understand, this here is a picture. The king is a picture of God, and we are this debtor. We're this debtor here. You owe God in your sin and in your sinfulness. You owe God a debt you could never repay. Do all the good works that you could ever do. You live a 24-7 righteousness. You can never be good enough to undo the wicked and the evil and the sin that's in your life. You can't get rid of it on your own. It's just not possible. It's just not possible. And yet God, in his infinite mercy, he took pity on me. He took pity on you. And he said, even though you will never be able to repay this, even though you will never be able to earn your own righteousness, what did he do? He sent Jesus Christ to be the propitiation, the payment, the redemption for my sin and for yours. And so he forgave that debt. What would it have cost us? Just like this man it would have cost him everything he owned. Listen, your soul, what else is there? It would have cost you everything, this debt. And yet, God wrote it off. He forgave it. Can you just imagine how this man would feel? Could you imagine if, uh, imagine if, I know some of, I know we have people in here that you've lived in the same home for decades and you're, you don't have a house payment anymore. Can you just, if, you're, if that's you, remember the day that you paid that last house payment. If it's not you, imagine paying that last house payment, right? Ah, that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thought. Man, no more, no more having to give money to someone else. All that I earn, I get to... Man, can you just imagine now a $6 billion debt? I don't think any of us are living in $6 billion houses. Scan the room really quick. I mean, it's that debt. It's unimaginable. And so this man, he goes home and he's rejoicing and he grabs his wife and he hugs her and he kisses her and he says, Honey, you'll never guess what happened today. We don't have to go be slaves. <laughs> Now, what does he do? On his way out of there, he runs into a fellow servant. And this fellow servant owed him 100 denarii. So about a third of a year's salary for a laborer, we'll say $10,000 ballpark, right? What does he do there? Does he say, man, you know that money that you owed me? Man, don't even worry about it. You won't believe what just happened to me. 
Well, let's let's pause for a second. <laughs> let's just press into this story for just a minute. Where is this guy coming up with ten thousand dollars, anyways? You owe someone six billion. You don't have ten thousand dollars lying around. It's probably, I mean, if you had to guess, it's probably coming from the debt that he owed, anyways. But whatever. So he comes up to this servant, and he says, "Pay me what you owe me. You owe me money." And what does this guy say? He says, "I don't have it." He comes at him. He grabs him by the throat. I mean, that's what it says. Look at verse number 28. Same servant. He went out. He found his, actually, here's what's happening. He found one of his fellow servants. So did he just stumble across his fellow servant? He went looking for him. What boldness this guy's got. He found his fellow servant. And he seized him and began to choke him. So he wants harm for his fellow servant. He says, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded, have patience with me. I will pay you. But this man who had been forgiven so much refused. And he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And so he says, listen, I know that my debt has been forgiven. And in fact, it's been forgiven more than I could ever be owed. But now you, you're going to pay me the things that you owe me. And he goes to this man. And he wants revenge on him. Even though a far greater debt had just been erased. When this fellow servant saw, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. Aside and rightfully so. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servants, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So all that forgiveness that was offered to him, all that forgiveness that was there on the table, listen, if you're really forgiven, you're going to forgive. That's just how it is. If you've been forgiven, you will forgive. And Jesus says some really strong words here in verse 35. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now we started this chapter. We started today's study beginning in reconciliation. You say, Nate, but what if I can't reconcile? What if the person refuses to listen? Or what if someone who's wrong? What if they've passed away? Uh, what if the distance is just, it's too great. It would be a greater hurt just to dig this back up. What if there's danger involved, a history of threats or abuse? What if they just don't want to reconcile? Well, reconciliation, understand this, reconciliation takes two, but forgiveness, where does forgiveness take place? Look at verse number 36. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Where does forgiveness take place? Where does forgiveness take place? In the heart. Forgiveness begins on the inside. And it works its way out towards reconciliation. You see, it's impossible to be reconciled without forgiveness. 
But it's possible that there will be times in your life where forgiveness will be required of you, even when reconciliation isn't possible. I think as Christians, sometimes we make the mistake to think these two things are are one and the same. Forgiveness is, I have decided to forgive you. I have decided that I'm not going to hold against you these things that did hurt and do hurt. I'm not going to let that be drug around behind me. I'm not going to carry that. I'm going to let that burden go. Reconciliation, it does take two. And unfortunately, in this world that we live in, well, we're all human beings. Sometimes, sometimes reconciliation can't happen for one of many reasons. It should be the goal of a believer. It should be sought after. It should be something that's pursued from a heart of forgiveness. Sometimes it, it won't happen. But because reconciliation isn't always possible, does that mean that we decide that we won't forgive either? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because forgiveness takes place in the heart. That's where reconciliation begins, and it's where forgiveness happens. And as Christians, it's not just us that love the idea of forgiveness. Everyone loves the idea of forgiveness, right? Everyone loves, oh, what a beautiful thing forgiveness can be. Uh, We hear stories on the news about how this person has forgiven this other person who wronged them or did something tragic to them or their family. Everyone loves the idea of forgiveness. It's not unique to Christians. But here's where the difference is. Forgiveness is part of the DNA of transformed disciples of Christ. Forgiveness is just built into who you and I are. You see, as Jesus spoke in John chapter number three, as he spoke to this man named Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. He's implying a whole new structure for who you are. First John, John writes and he calls the believers coming after him, little children, little children, you're the children of God, you're the children of God. You're made of the same stuff. You have the DNA inside of you that God has imprinted on you when you were born again. And let me tell you, that DNA right in the thick of it is a DNA of forgiveness. You see, all of us, we have that DNA that we received, we inherited from our biological parents. And so some of us have light hair, some of us have dark hair, straight, curly, some are tall, some are short, everything in between, Right? Well, the DNA that God has imprinted in us is a DNA that has at its core forgiveness. So if we go out into the world and we say, I'm not going to forgive. I'm I'm not going to let things go. I'm not going to attempt reconciliation. I'm not going to. Listen, you know what that's saying? That's saying there's something wrong deeper inside of this process. There's something happening inside of you. That a believer in Jesus Christ is not meant to carry, not meant to walk through, not meant to harbor. And so maybe today you're sitting in this room, and if I were to ask this question, have you been forgiven? Have you been forgiven? Just like this man here who owed a great insurmountable debt, and the king came and said, hey, listen, I forgive this debt. Have you been forgiven? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Maybe you're in here today and you say, you know what? I've never been forgiven. I've never asked Jesus. I've never asked God to forgive me. I've never placed my faith in in Jesus Christ. I've never been born again. I've never taken that step. Well, today would be a great day to take that step. 
You can, just like that man that owed that great sum, you can come to God and you can say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you know what God will do? He'll do it. He'll do it. Maybe you're in the room today and you say, hey, listen, I've been there. I put my faith in Jesus Christ and man, he paid a debt I could never owe. Are you attempting to enjoy the freedom that Christ gives while refusing to apply it to others? Because man, that's what happened with these servants. He said, I want the forgiveness that the king has given me, but I don't want to forgive nobody else. Man, that 10,000 you owe me, it's a good thing I didn't try to collect that a few weeks ago because I would have paid that to the king. Here I am now. Time for me to get a, a new car or a new house. Time to me to start this process and put that down payment on whatever. No. No. If you've been forgiven, you, not should, not can, will forgive.